Welcome to Made in Africa. Hello everyone and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Made in Africa podcast. It's been a few weeks since we were last here, but there's been plenty going on in the Premier League and beyond. For this episode, we're going to take a look at the forthcoming World Cup qualifiers that have thrown up some mouth-watering ties, including one of Africa's biggest rivalries going head-to-head with Ghana up against Nigeria. Rahman and I will be joined by Olawashina Okaleji later to discuss which of the West African heavyweights should be considered favourites to make it to Qatar. We will also be taking a look at the other ties that will see Senegal face Egypt in a rematch of the 2021 AFCON final, Mali aiming for their first ever World Cup finals appearance as they take on Tunisia, Cameroon up against Algeria, and the Democratic Republic of Congo versus Morocco. But first, it's time to welcome my esteemed co-host, Rahman Osman. How have you been, mate? Oh, good. You're the one with all the gists. How was your holidays? Oh, very nice. Thank you. Very nice. Yeah, I went to Jamaica for a couple of weeks on my honeymoon. Oh, and, my God. Uh, yeah. I want to go to Jamaica too. Oh, you, yeah, I really, really recommend it. It was fantastic uh, a couple of weeks and really missing it already. But thankfully, we've got a bit of sunshine in London this week. So it's making me feel a bit better. Um, yeah, it's been it's been a really crazy few weeks, actually, uh, since we last did our, an episode. And um, Liverpool, Manchester City looking like it's going to go all the way to the wire in the title race. And both sides also in contention to win the Champions League and the FA Cup. So could be quite a quite an end to the season for both of them. And uh, I, was, I was also really pleased to come back to see, obviously, see Palace get through to the FA Cup semi-finals after thrashing Everton uh, on Sunday. Wilfred Zahar again on the score sheet. Do you think they're going to have a chance against Chelsea in the semi-final? Well, it's the semi-final of um, FA Cup. It's everybody's game. Obviously, Chelsea have the big budget, big players and all that, and they, they are really on form. I think that if there's a club in this in this world that's able to, to turn chaos into good form and winning machines, it's Chelsea. So that's a really tough, tough, tough draw to get from Palace. But you don't get easy draws in the semifinals of the FA Cup. What you should do, though, is, Ed, you need to go back to Jamaica because I've studied and found out that every time you're away, Palace do really well. So maybe you go back to Jamaica. <laughs> yeah, all right. That suits me. Yeah, absolutely. That would be brilliant. Uh, just talking about Zahal, and he's going to be playing for the Ivory Coast against England in a friendly this week. It's the first time the two nations have ever met in a senior men's international. And we're both going to be there, I think, Rahman, and it's going to be a, quite an occasion. What do you think it means for Ivorian football and African football? Well, quite massive. Wembley... 90,000 seater, a chance to play against the three Lions in their own backyard. I've been lucky enough to see a couple of African teams come and play at Wembley. I remember, was it in 2017, somewhere in November? 2017, November, I think Nigeria played England also at Wembley. It was a spectacle. And I I mean, there are a lot of matchups that could be. Another angle we could put to all this is the Palace angle. Imagine Tarek Mitchell. Who yeah. always plays on the same line with Wilfred Zaha coming up against him? Zaha on one wing and Michel trying to stop him. Yeah, and Mark, and, and Mark Gay as well. Obviously, um, he's yeah. a, he's of Ivorian heritage as well, Mark Gay. So it'd be yeah. great to see if he could get a, a chance uh, against them. Yeah, uh, and, and then, then just before we we welcome Olawashina um, on, I just wanted to just touch on Mohamed Salah's contract talks, which seem to have stalled somewhat since uh, we last spoke. And uh, what, what's the latest you're hearing? 
Well, what I'm hearing is that Liverpool don't just have the money Mo Salah is demanding, and it's not because they don't value or cherish him. At this point, it's hard for them to match Kevin De Bruyne's salary on the basis that Mo Salah is the best player. And there's no doubt Mo Salah is the best player in the Premier League at the minute. The only issue is that Liverpool don't have bottomless pit of cash like Man City have, or that's one of the problems. So like you rightfully said, at this moment, we are hearing that, oh, Juventus are interested, maybe possibly PSG if Neymar and Mbappe leave. Because in the last week that PSG have crashed out of the Champions League, there's been a lot of rumours about them moving the project to another direction. And that includes letting some of the big stars leave and then they can bring in new fresh, new faces. If they bring in somebody, or if they let go Mbappe, who we are told is going to Real Madrid, then there's an opening there and they have a lot of money. Juventus also are looking to rebuild and start a new project and they are looking at Mo Salah. But at this moment, Liverpool still have the upper hand, but they are running out of time. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting because I, I you know, just presume that he would he would sign the contract by now. And, and obviously, Sadio Mane is in the same boat, really, with, with with his contract running out next summer. So, yeah, it's going to be... <laughs> uh, Liverpool have obviously got quite a few things to deal with before that. But it's a bit of a distraction, I think, isn't it? I know it's massive distraction, but it's not showing on the pitch, to be honest. If, if you look at the kind of form Liverpool are in now winning about 11 games on the streak. Mo Salah looking really sharp. Sadio looking sharp. Competition, they've got like five five strikers now. And normally when new players like Diaz come in, I think that it just kicks the, the, the players who've been there for a while in the back. And so it's not showing on the pitch, but it's something they don't want to have at the back of their mind. Okay, now it's time to look ahead to the World Cup qualifiers in some more detail, and we are delighted to be joined by one of Nigeria's most respected football journalists. I first met Oluwashina at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, and he's been working for the BBC for many years and has also contributed to New Frame and Al Jazeera. Hi, mate. It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm very well, Ed. Thanks for having me. Um, Ed, can I say, can I say something? Of course. Oluwashina, because... You met him in 2010, and he is like an inspiration to every rising journalist in West Africa. So many years before, even now, that a lot of people are springing up, Sheena was like the marking scheme of what journalists or football journalists are. So it's really a privilege to have him on Made in Africa. That's very kind words from you, Rom. How do you feel about that, Sheena? Yeah, don't worry about that, uh, man. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> money in the post. Money in the post, man. No, no. I think it's just an equally um, refreshing thing to see a young man. He's grown mm-hmm. up. Um, he's become one of the um, fast-rising um, journalists in Africa mm-hmm. who are actually making a mark in Europe as well. So it's a, it's a privilege to be on the show with you, Ed, as well. Oh, thank you very much. And and how are you feeling about this game? Because obviously it's an absolutely enormous game. It would be anyway if it was just a World Cup qualifier, you know, a playoff. But to be playing against Ghana, I mean, you couldn't have scripted it. Well, you know, it's not the type of, or it's rather not the draw Nigerians wanted. I mean, there's this um, bittersweet rivalry, I'll call it like, um, there's this tension between Nigeria and Ghana when it comes to football. We are the big brothers, they always, always beat when it comes to football. And we are that big brother who always figure Ghana is too small to beat Nigeria wherever, <laughs> whenever mm. both nations play. But 
um, Nigerians would, would have preferred, say, DR Congo or Mali, um, if you are taking opinions of a lot of people. But during the African Cup of Nations, with the way the Ghanaians team performed, I think Nigerians were just like, you know what, probably this is the best draw for them. So for me, um, it's not, I, I wouldn't want a derby for a World Cup qualifying because a lot is riding on these friends on the other side, family members on that side. But then, then again, only one team can be at the World Cup. It's either going to be Ghana or Nigeria. Mm, yeah, and the first leg is in Kumasi on, on Friday. Um, and, and Nigeria have have gone into the uh, into the tie without Wilfred Ndidi, who looks like he's not going to play again this season. But you have Victor Osimhen back to lead the line. So that must give you a lot more confidence. Yeah, I think the team of the Nigerian team going into this tournament, um, sorry, into these um, playoffs is home and the way wins. That tells you the level of confidence. You might call them being abrasive, arrogant and cocky, but that's the Nigerian spirit. They said they want to win home and the way. Without Wifred Ndidi, it becomes a little bit harder. Um, you have, um, um, what's it called? Uh, Genekaro Etebo, Peter Etebo to Watford fans, just returning from a long-term injury. Um, and of course, Innocent Bonke has been brought in to replace Wifred Ndidi. So there's a bit of a concern on that part for Nigeria. But then again, it's Ghana we are talking about. The first leg is in Kumasi. Um, it doesn't come any bigger than that. The players are quite aware. They may be young, but they know that um, you can lose to every African nation except Ghana and, of course, Cameroon. <laughs> yeah, and, and the AFCON, I think most, most people in the, at the end of the group stages thought that Nigeria were going to be the team to stop, actually, because, you know, they won all their matches. They looked fantastic. But do you think, obviously, that setback of being knocked out against Tunisia in the last 16, uh, how, didn't they learn a bit from that, you know, maybe not to be so complacent? Well, I, I don't think they were, I don't think they were um, a, a bit, um, I, I, honestly, I don't think the players really looked um, at the Tunisian team and thought they were going to win. Um, they weren't complacent. That first thing, what went wrong for them was the fact that they had a manager who was quite predictable. Um, yeah. Nigeria, were, after winning those three matches, um, expectations were um, high in Nigeria. But that was ironic because before the team left for the tournament, expectations were lowered. People thought, you know what, let them just get to their semifinals as usual, come back home and all that. Um, they didn't expect them to win three matches. They did win three matches in style as well. So mm. I think the level of the performance of the team actually created a new um, confidence in the, Nigerian, in the minds of the Nigerian fans and, of course, a new sort of um, passion for the fans. I think the way they crashed out against Tunisia has reminded Nigerian fans that they don't need to get carried away. I don't think the players were complacent. I think the manager was predictable. I also don't blame the Nigerian fans who were expectant of the team after winning those three matches. I just think one of these, um, it was meant to happen. It was going to happen. And I think it was a good thing they got knocked out of the African Cup of Nations early enough. So it reminds them where they are, where they truly are in African football. And that's a huge lesson. And that's something they are taking to Ghana. They believe they can go to Ghana and make a huge statement. What's the point winning the AFCON and not qualifying for the World Cup? I think this is the bigger... Um, this is the bigger game for Nigeria and Nigerians, in my opinion. Yeah, you can understand that. And, and the, can you just tell us about what's happened with the coach? Because Augustin Egwavan is still in charge, isn't he? Uh, despite the fact that there were another coach was appointed before the AFCON, he was supposed to take over for this tie. Well, basically, um, the Nigerian Football Federation president is a talker. He likes talking, Mr. Amar Dupinik. Yeah. Um, he, 
he talks before he thinks sometimes. I'm sorry, it's not disrespectful, it's just how he is. Um, apparently, he announced that um, Jose Pesero, um, with the help of Jose Mourinho and um, with the input of Asen Wenger, had been considered um, to take over as Nigeria manager at the end of the African Cup of Nations in Cameroon. He made the announcement, it was public. Um, then Mr. Pesero was expected to um, observe as well as watch the team at the African Cup of Nations. But we realized Mr. Pesero wasn't there. Then a week after the AFCON, Mr. Pesero um, was wondering where all of this noise was coming from. And he made a statement um, to say that, listen, um, he wasn't aware of any arrangement with Nigeria. Um, they, they had a conversation and they didn't agree on what he wanted. What he wanted was to bring in his own backroom staff to also get paid ahead of time. Um, you know, I mean, he wanted to pay, be paid four months ahead. <laughs> Oh, really? the, I mean, of course, it's, yeah, because it's read so much about Nigeria and uh, um, the attitude when it comes to paying managers. So he wanted to be paid up front. He wanted his own backroom stuff. Like that. So they didn't agree on terms. And that was how it collapsed. Austin Leguaguen was an interim manager at the African Cup of Nations. It was too difficult. It was, a, it was now too late for Nigeria to start looking for another manager in the words of the NFF. So they've opted for their technical director, Austin Leguaguen, to continue as coach of Nigeria. He's on an, an interim basis. Um, they've brought in Emmanuel Amonike, who many back home believe is a more tactically um, disciplined and a very um, tactically gifted coach who can actually make a huge contribution. So that's what Nigeria have done. Whilst Ghana were going for consortium, Nigeria just promote within and of course brought in ex-internationals to just help the squad. Mm, yeah, it's, it's an interesting approach. And you, yeah, you mentioned Ghana, perhaps Roman, you could talk about that um, obviously there's, there's been a change of coach uh, for Ghana as well with, with Chris Hewton, a technical director as well. But can you just explain what the situation is now? Well, I think that's just a straightforward situation. Um, we take Milo to the AFCON. It was, it was a disaster to have Milo back and they've decided to go with Otoado, who was supposed to be part of Milo's technical team, but he didn't show up in Cameroon. Um, the backstory is that he didn't agree with what Milo was doing on all fronts. So what's happening is that he's now got the job to lead Ghana to the World Cup. If he's able to take Ghana to the World Cup, obviously he stands a better chance of getting the the deal or the, the job full time. Then Chris comes in to give like a technical support or technical brains to augment the entire technical backline because he's got experience, coached in the Premier League, highly rated in England and all that. But I mean... I'd just like to speak a bit on the game itself because normally we we get we get drafted into the side issues and the game itself it has a really really interesting bite to it and most of my colleagues from Nigeria are are just saying the same thing Oluwashina is saying to win both home and away but I think this is where Nigeria is going to really fall short because you don't even need to win the game to to go to the World Cup. And you, you actually don't need to win it. We just need to get a good results in Ghana and go and get a result in Nigeria. You can play 0-0 in Kumasi and go and get 1-1 in Lagos or Abuja and go to Qatar. You don't need to win it. That's what, and this has always been the mentality of Nigeria. Nigeria's team gets so excited with the attacking talent of Simeon, Dennis, Iggy, all the big names, we need to go and beat them. If Ghana can just keep their hair, 
they're going to trash Nigeria. They don't need to win it. Here we go. <laughs> no, no, that's just that's just the reality of what we're doing. Because if almost every time Ghana has played Nigeria, Nigeria have had bigger players, bigger names, bigger players doing big things in big big in Europe. Okay. But if you read what the what what the head-to-head start tell you, you'll be surprised to see that Ghana have the better stats when it comes. You can play to psychology, you can play to tactics, you can play to whatever, but the numbers don't lie. Obviously, Nigeria have got bigger names, and given how they started the AFCON, a lot of people will put their money for them to go past Ghana. But their Achilles heel was again exposed, even in Cameroon. Whenever they get excited, they lose their shape. All Ghana has to do is remain calm for them to come and play all their big names. Let them do. Just keep the shape over them. It's always yeah, in the um, he, no, he, he has a clear point, Ed. I have to agree with him. Um, Nigerians tend to get carried away and all that. Um, it's the Nigerian spirit. You can't blame them. It's a cultural thing in Nigeria. Nigerians are quite confident. Sometimes they sound too loud, arrogant, cocky, you would say. But it's just the self-confidence. Everyone is brought up, raised in Nigeria to believe that you're the best at all of these things because you're, you're raised and brought up in Nigeria to believe in yourself. Every culture in the Nigerian home will teach you, you can't be second best, you have to be the best. So every time they think and they talk, other African countries consider them very lousy, very cocky, very arrogant. Um, no Nigerian come anywhere and he wants to be second best, he wants to be the best. So that's explains some of these things to a lot of people who are watching from the outside. And yes, I agree with Raman. Um, a lot of this self-confidence thing comes and sometimes um, it backfires and all of that. But we're talking about the World Cup qualifying year. He's right about the head-to-head, but it doesn't come any bigger than this. And Ghana are coming in with coaches who have no clue or idea what it means to play um, at this stage of this, um, at this level in terms of, you know, AFCON or World Cup qualifying. Austin Egwabon has played at the World Cup. He has managed Nigeria against Ghana at the 2006 African Cup of Nations. He beat them in Port Said. It was a good Ghanaian squad. They lost and if they, it was another embarrassing exit at the 2006 African Cup of Nations. So he's coming with that mindset. No, no, he knows that the team has changed. The law has changed for Ghana. But you also have Otto Ado and um, Chris who have no clue. They haven't, you're giving them a team just a few weeks to the um, World Cup playoffs. In the minds of Nigerians, in the heads of a lot of Nigerians, that is self-confidence. They believe Ghana are in complete disarray right now. And what a good time to play Ghana. I mean, to show you they are scared, Ghana took forever to keep their <laughs> squad away from everyone, saying it's a strategy not to announce their squad. They announced the squad, even the people in the country, the fans, the media, they are confused and they're angry. So all of this sets the tone for a game that will be decided in Kumasi and um, Abuja. Let me correct you, Raman. You said, oh, Nigeria, Ghana, Nigeria don't need to win home and away. If you need to go, if you need to get to play amongst the best, you need to show that you are the best. So why would you go to Ghana with the mindset of going for a draw or come to Abuja thinking you want to play a draw? You go with the mindset of winning. If you get a good result, draw, fine. And you come home and you finish the business. It's the same way. No team goes into a, um, a tournament or, you know, a, a game thinking, oh, we have to manage expectations. We need to do this. The Nigerian spirit, like I said at the top of this conversation, is that it's a spirit that you cannot be the second best. Will it go well for them? We don't know. I just believe the best side will win in this playoff tie. It's one of the most difficult ones to call in terms of all five games happening in Africa this, um, this month. Sometimes in, in games, especially in two-legged games, 
how you manage and approach the game determines. And that's why I think that Ghana has a really good chance on this. Every single thing is pointing to a Nigerian dominance or a Nigerian massacre. But historically, Ghana thrives on situations like this. And I'll, I'll give you a, an example of that. Going to qualify for the 2010 World Cup, Ghana was in a much better mess than they are in today. At that time, Jan was injured. Steven Apia was clubless. Michael Essien had a court case. We were going to play Mali. And that Mali team was not this kind of Mali team. It was one of the best Malian teams you'd get in 2010. How we qualified for the World Cup. We were a total mess. Yet in that chaos, we put up a team without five of its core core, the heart of that team. No Subuntari, no Stephen Apia, Michael Asian having caught cases in and out of the team. And yet we went and beat Mali and qualified. There's, there's enough to show that if we go boot for boot against Nigeria, they will massacre us. But that's where the strength of Ghana also is. And that's why it's a strategy to, and what Oluwashina sees as being scared is actually a Ghanaian strategy to let them feel bossy, to <laughs> let them feel as if, oh, we are all a mess. <laughs> so come on, bring your game. Because at the end of the day, the best strategy is the one that gets you to the World Cup, not the ones who Absolutely. It doesn't yes. matter whether you name your squad five years before the game or <laughs> a ninth before the game. If you get to Qatar, your strategy worked. If what happens to Ghana, what would you say about Ghana? If we go in the mentality to win the game in Kumasi and we win the game two, we go to Abuja and they beat us 3-0. Have we proven? We've proven nothing. We can get a good result in Kumasi. Guys, keep your heads. Let's keep it tight because it's a two-legged game. No matter the results in Accra, that will not define the game. There's still a nice this guy is working for his license. He's working for his city <laughs> license. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, Agashina, if it comes to players, Nigeria have got the players. What Ghana has got is the history and the head. And that's why we've always had a better chance of beating Nigeria than any other country would have been paired against. Or maybe any other... I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I'll give yeah. you that so, on so, Friday so, and Tuesday. So let's go. <laughs> so so in, in conclusion to this, I'd say that it's a game that means so much than even Qatar itself. When Nigeria play Ghana, so many things come into motion. Like we don't share border but we act as if we share bodies. And I always say this, my mom is Nigerian. My dad is Ghanaian. I only grew up in Ghana. So I understand in my house, we ate Amala all the way, just like the way we ate Haiti. <laughs> so that's why I always say to them, I understand the Nigerian culture. And like Oliver Shina said, the Nigerian bravery and confidence sometimes comes across as crass, but it's not, it's just who they are. Ghanaians are much more humble, much more quieter and calm. But that can be deceptive because when it comes to battle, you're equally ready. This is probably a good time to mention that the last time Ghana beat Nigeria was in 2007, 4-1. A very famous evening for, for Black Stars fans. But the last time the two countries met in the World Cup qualifier, I believe, was in 2001 when Nigeria won 3-0.
um, in the group stages and, and obviously qualified for, for the World Cup in 2002. So can you just explain to me a little bit then, both of you, because you, you mentioned that there's no land border between Ghana and Nigeria, but why is there such a big rivalry then? Is it, as you say, the families are often split between people that were, you know, born in Nigeria or vice versa? It's, it's a lot of things. The language is one. I think we're all both colonized by the British. We have so many things in common. It's like the way we speak, the way we present ourselves, even our foods are kind of similar. Our yeah. light soup is what they call like their pepper soup. Their jollof rice. Yeah, it's we, been called the jollof derby this game, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. By some people. We, we, we just have, what Nigeria have over us is numbers. They have a population of about 200 million people plus. But you can walk into Lagos or Abuja and still think you're in Accra because they have the same thing. They travel with taxis and trotros. We travel in taxis and trotros. They have the Okades. We have the motos. We have every single thing the same. And so it's, it's, the, the rivalry is not hatred. It's not like grudge. It's a healthy rivalry, like Oluwashina says. Even in our um, music industry, you can pick up a sense that when a Ghanaian is doing well, there's also a Nigerian doing very well. And combinations of Nigerians and Ghanaians come together to make it really, really, really good in, in a lot of stuff. So it's hard to explain and pinpoint why is that way. But I just think, like he rightfully said, Nigeria is Ghana's big brother on numbers. But on the pitch, it seems like Ghana always find a way of beating their big brother. Well, we got some more you got to say that. It's been mean 15 years since that's happened. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, listen, um, it's a very good question you've asked. Like, they don't share land borders. They are even stuck between two Francophone countries, Benin and Togo. Um, and you wonder why. I think all of these um, stems from the fact that, um, you know, both nations stood, um, like you pointed out, um, side by side on the front lines in that battle for independence from um, the colonial rule back in the 50s. And you know, with the size of Nigeria, they expected um, Ghana um, to gain their independence later. But Ghana became the first black nation to gain independence. And Nigeria, who felt like they were bigger, they were, they were, they should have gotten theirs, had to wait three years for them to get theirs. Um, Raman, you guys go in 1957, right? Yes. Yeah, Nigeria came in 1960. So from there, there was the envy and jealousy, like, how can the little brother just go there and do that blah 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 you know mm. so it all starts from there and then when you look at the, the the football as well um you you realize that you would always expect that um nigeria big brother yet they are little sources um because as far as size and population go nigeria is clearly the bigger of the two but then again nigeria they've got three african titles ghana they've got four ghana's dominance in the 70s and 80s as since um, disappeared. I mean, they haven't won the AFCON since 82. So as Ghana just filtered away in terms of their glory, Nigeria, Nigeria rose. Um, they won their first AFCON 80, um, Ghana won 82, their last one. Mm. And Nigeria went on to win 94 and 2018. So Nigeria, they just look at this country like, these people, why are they so tiny here? They just come <laughs> here and give us problems. Like, they just feel like they should dominate over them. You know, that bully who feels like he can always get one over the little brother. So yeah. that's just how it is. But like you said, it's an empty rivalry. Um, we love them. They love us. We play the same music. We eat their banku. There's a cultural mm -hmm. thing. Um, then you need to also remember that there's a political undertone to this, um, this problem. Um, Ghana, people tend to forget, were the first to chase Nigerians out of their country when they were having the cocoa boom. Um, they, they said like they were 
undocumented immigrants in the country. They chased Nigerians away in the 60s. And it was a it was a really, really sad one for a lot of Nigerians. They didn't believe it. They couldn't imagine because they felt like, you know, how could Ghana do this? You know, um, I don't know if Raman remember the story of the alien compliance order of um, 1969, um, which order that um, all of undocumented aliens to leave Ghana. You know, even though they were Togolese, Burkinabis, Ivorians, Nigerians, and other West Africans, you know, Nigerians were mostly the target, especially those from my tribe, Yoruba, from the Southwest ethnic group, they were mm. chased out, and Nigerians never forgot that. The moment um, Ghana suffered its own economical boom from around 1974, then they started coming to Nigeria. You know, they were looking for jobs, they were, they were having famine issues, they were having other issues. They came to Nigeria and trust Nigeria, they never forget. Um, in 1983, these two made their own, you know, they, Nigeria found oil, to be fair. They found oil, they were booming, Ghanaians came there and, you know, the oil issue happened in 1983 where Nigeria couldn't sell their oil into the world anymore because oil became, oil, the oil price collapsed and Nigerians were struggling. What did they do? They also turned around and said, you know what, there are immigrants in this country, undocumented ones who are causing problems for us and mm. Ghanaians were chased out of Nigeria. So yeah. most people lost their homes. They lost a lot of things. Ghanaians who were very old never recovered from this. Some people never got, got recovered mentally from that. My dad lived in Ghana for 30 years. He told me lovely stories about the fantasies, about, the, about the, the lovely people in Ghana. I actually felt Ghanaian. I felt like I knew Ghanaian. He was a huge fan of um, Jerry Rollins, the former Ghanaian leader. And mm. my father was like, you know, Ghanaians, are the best people in the world. So we know all of this history. Like Raman pointed out, he has Nigerian blood. I've got my dad who told me a lot about Ghanaian. These stories are passed on from generation to generation about mm. why we have Ghana must go back. I don't know if you've heard about yeah. Ghana must go back. Um, Ed, um, you know, when Ghanaians were leaving Nigeria, they had that bag to leave Nigeria in the 80s. And they've named it that same bag that you see everywhere. Now it was banned by KLM at some point. So there's the history. <laughs> We always say Ghana must yeah. go. Now Nigerians are saying Nigeria must go yeah, to Qatar. That's really, that's really interesting. Thank you. There's something I wasn't I wasn't aware of all of that actually. It's really fascinating to hear, hear about that. And, the close and, talk between. And just what? just to add a, a point to what Oluwashina said, in the early 2000s when I was growing up in Accra, Ghana, Nigeria had a president called Olusengu Obasanjo, and Ghana had a president called John Adekunku. For they were the best of friends, best of friends, like the best relationship Ghana had suffered, uh, had had with Nigeria when it came to pre uh, presidency. And ahead of the 2002 World Cup, the one you referred to as they beat us to go to the World Cup, mm. there's still a feeling within Ghana that we gave them the chance because the first leg in Accra, we played them using Accra House of Oaks first 11. And then we went to back to Nigeria and they beat us. I think they beat us 3-0 or 3-1 mm -hmm. to qualify for the World Cup. Yeah, Liber Liberians were so upset with Ghana that we had given Nigeria a walk in the park to go to Korea, Japan in 2002. And if you look closely at the history and numbers, Nigeria had a solid record of beating Ghana at the time Olusengu Obasanjo was president of Nigeria. <laughs> it's, it's such a really unspoken time in our history. In 2002, there was such a dark 
time for really? Ghanaian football. Yeah, because you finished fourth in the in the table that year as well. Yes, it wasn't we, as... Were, we were so down in that that was a really difficult period. Now it was within that rooms that we rose to go to our first World Cup in mm. 2006. And since that 10 of events, we've always punched above our elder brothers. And it feels like they seem to get excited when they have names. And forget that, Tunisia's second team showed us that when you block their wings, they're as average as Comoros themselves. <laughs> Big words. All right, well, this is going to be really, really fascinating to watch over the next week. But I think we, we better just move on to the other four ties quickly. We haven't got that much time left. So, so let's start with uh, Senegal against Egypt. Obviously, Salah against Mane again, but so much more as well because, you know, Egypt missed out in the final of the AFCON uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, who are you, who's your money on, both of you, for this one? Um, I'll go for Senegal. I'll go for Senegal. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go for Senegal also, only because of the way Carlos Correz plays. Um, he, he, he played really a defensive system, which is quite really not accepted in Egypt. But the people of Egypt accepted it because he kept on getting results in Cameroon. But I think the first leg is in Cairo, in Egypt. Mm. And normally when you play in Cairo, the pressure and demands is that you go out there and win the, and win the game. And I think that Senegal are just riding so high at this point that they would have enough for them. So yeah, I'll go always Shina Senegal for me. Yeah, I think I think so too. Although, you know, Egypt's have got a real um a, a real point to prove, I suppose, after losing that that final. And and obviously Mohamed Salah is not gonna want a double disappointment. But um so Mali Tunisia is a very interesting tie. I think Mali uh, are the only country that can qualify, I think, for their first World Cup. Um, out, out of the 10 because everybody else has already and, and I don't know I think they've got a good chance against Tunisia what do you guys think? Absolutely um, I think the Mali team um, the young team that has been growing you've got their under 20s and some of the players have come in from the under 17s as well but what they've managed to do now is forget about what the campaign at the African Cup of Nations reason being that you speak to some of the players I was in touch with Amari Traore and he's saying that the AFCON was to prepare them for the World Cup playoff and I said, how can you explain that? I said, because everyone in Mali understands that to win the AFCON takes a lot. And I don't think they are, they are at that stage where they are ready to win the AFCON yet. The World Cup qualifying, they've watched countries like tiny Togo, Angola, go to their World Cup for the first time. Why not Mali? So I think the, the mentality here is, can the Carthage Eagles you know, fight back from everything that went on at the um, African Cup of Nations. Wabi Kazri was talking the other time saying the players need to forget about what happened in, um, in Cameroon and just focus on it. I think, I want to go, I did it would favor Tunisia because of the experience, because of the fact that they have, a, they have a very strong team and all that. But I'm going Mali this time because I just believe one team is going to make, is going to shock the big boys and that will be Mali. Mm. Yeah, I, I've, I'm a big fan of them and I was, at this point, I didn't go a bit further in the AFCON, but as you say, if they were using it as preparation for this, and I think that's probably a good idea because it's gonna could work wonders for football there. They have they produce so many good players, and just having that, you know, um, that confirmation that they're at the top table by making the World Cup could be could be great for the country. What about you, Roman? Do you think that Mali can do that? Yeah, it it points like Mali will go to their first World Cup. They've got really good 
um, core of midfielders. Oh my God. Um, Haidara. Mm. And, and did I say, I've just got a Brighton. Yes, Bisoma. Yeah, really good. His his form has dealt a little bit, but he's such a really powerful midfielder to have. But the thing with Tunisia is they always qualify for the World Cup. I don't know how they do it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how, how Tunisia do it. You're always at the World Cup. And so yeah. that, 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 that's just one of the little things that play on the mind. Like a lot of the time people write them off. Oh, it's just Tunisia, but they come out with their goods and go. But I'll put my money on Mali to get there this time around. Cool. And, and uh, another heavyweight clash is Cameroon v Algeria. Obviously, Algeria had a terrible AFCON, having gone in with a, almost a record uh, unbeaten run and as the reigning champions, but then crashed out in the group stages. So they're going to have a point to prove too. But Cameroon, obviously at home, very strong. Uh, mm. Who do you think is going to get through? That was really hard to call that one, isn't it? Mm. Well, this is a very difficult one. <laughs> Managerial Nigeria change for Cameroon. Um, with um, Rigobert Song, the legend, coming in there. Um, Samuel Eto is playing a very strong politics now by bringing in his former captain and his brother, um, Rigobert Song. Cameroon, um, everyone says playing in Douala at the Japoma Stadium is all Cameroon need to wake up from their slumber. They believe they, they're still sleeping from what happened at the AFCON. So I think this is a very difficult one. Algeria under um, Belmadi looked like uh, the... the Looked, looked invisible before the Afghan, only for them to be torn apart. We saw what happened to them, embarrassing defeat and exit at the African Cup of Nations. I think psychologically, Cameroon will look at this fixture and think they stand a chance. The fact that the first game is in um, Duala says a lot. It, it tells you that Cameroon will want to take care of business at home and then go away. They, 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 they find it very difficult playing in the, in, you know, during the African Cup. I realize that they always get away with um, a whole lot of nonsense when they play in their own day, according to the fans, they don't get away with nonsense in Douala. So they know they cannot falter in front of their own fans in Douala. So I think the first leg might be a big one for Cameroon and should Rigobert Song pick a ticket to the World Cup, I think he's just continuing to write his, um, his legendary story in African football. Mm, absolutely, yeah. I mean, he was, he was uh, sent <laughs> off in the World Cup, wasn't he? I seem to remember back in the day. Uh, the first when, one, yeah. When he was a player. And Ronald, what do you think about that one? That's a really, uh, that's tough to call on a lot of ground because I don't understand why they changed coach Cameroon, to be honest, because they were doing really well. They lost to Egypt on penalties. That's hard. Like, it's really hard to fire a manager who lost on penalties because they were on the way to the final. Even on the third place game, they were losing and they came back. So they've gone, they've gone, they've gone, they've gone on a patriotic, maybe my own kind of, road because when there's a new manager he comes with his new ideas and it's not as if the team was doing bad and so they needed a change Cameroon were really strong at the AFCON they were unlucky with a little bit of luck against Egypt they would have gone to the final Egypt rode their luck kept on kept on defending and defending till it got to penalties and they had a good goalkeeper and they they went through the penalties then all of a sudden they decided to sack the manager Mm. And bring in Song. He's a legend. The only thing that will stop will stop Algeria, I think, is that they complain so much about the pitches in Cameroon. And they have to still go back there and play on that same pitch. The good thing for them is that they get to take the second leg back home. And I think that's where the difference will be made. For me, it's Algeria. And then the final tie, I mean, looks 
like Morocco would be the big favourites against DR Congo, but as we know, it's never that straightforward. And with the home and away, uh, you know, legs could could play into Congo's hands, maybe. I don't see I don't see Congo. All I see is Morocco at the minute. I mean, um, again, another unfortunate team at the hands of Egypt. Uh, I thought they played very well against Egypt and should have won. And um, so many good things are happening in Moroccan football. Their investment behind the scenes, and I just feel that going to the World Cup will be a crowning moment of a country that has always been so close yet so far. Um, yeah, it's hard for me to see past them. I tend to disagree. I think um, DR Congo, because they didn't go to the African Cup of Nations, this is an opportunity and, of course, a, a whole lot riding on this. Um, remember, they have Hector Cuba who understands what it takes to actually play in tournament. I struggle with Egypt, but with um, DR Congo, you know, they have a very strong squad. Cedric Pakambo, Chance Mbemba, Dioma Simbokani, you know, um, Guy Kakuta is back like um, he never left. Um, Christian Ndama. So they have a very strong squad. I think for Morocco, what they what, what they would need to um, they don't have anything to work on. They would have to go back to watching DR Congo from the qualifying. Unlike DR Congo, they've seen Morocco at the at the African Cup of Nations. They've seen Omar with Akim Ziyech. They've seen what um, they know what um, um, what was the right back with PSG um, Ashraf Ashraf Hakimi confused, and they know how to if they know how to neutralize them. I think this might be very difficult for Morocco. They think that DR Congo might be easy, but I, I want to disagree. I think if DR Congo fails to qualify for this World Cup, they should forget about the World Cup in another 50 years. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad that, we, that we're ending on you two disagreeing. That's quite good, actually. I think we're yeah, going to yeah. there because uh, it, sets it, <laughs> it sets it up really nicely for, for the big games in the next few days. Thank you so there's, much. There's there's obviously pressure on Oluwashina because he would have preferred that um, we played the Ghana Nigeria first leg in Nigeria because yeah. I know the pressure in Nigeria for the second leg. This is what is going to freeze them in the second leg. If Ghana Don't can worry, get... I'll be sending, I'll be sending, no, no, I'll be sending you therapeutic <laughs> voice messages, Raman. Uh, <laughs> well, listen, guys, thank you very much for that and appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, Enjoy the thank game. You, thank, so you. thank you so much to Raman and Oluwashina. It's going to be a really intriguing couple of weeks to see who makes it to the World Cup in Qatar. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks again for listening. And until next time.